Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 20th, 2021. This evening, we are going to present part nine of our commentary on the epistles of John, and it is titled, Love is in the Law, Believe It or Not. In the last presentation of our commentary on this first epistle of John, we discussed the discerning of spirits in relation to the opening half of chapter 4 of this epistle. The chapter begins with the admonishment from the apostle that his readers not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh. And he proceeds to inform them that those spirits, referring to embodied spirits, to people, who are from of God would acknowledge that Yahshua, or Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ or Messiah, that for that reason they would be despised by the world, but that they would also love both God and one another, and in turn they would be loved by God. When we read chapter 5 of the epistle, John professes that the love of God is expressed by keeping his commandments, and that is also the manner by which Christians should express their love for their brethren. We are going to preface a lot of what John says in chapter 5 here this evening. In relation to earlier chapters of this epistle, among other things we have discussed, Christ and Antichrist, separating the wheat from the tares, of course, being able to discern the wheat from the tares, and dichotomies, false and true. However, none of these subjects have yet been exhausted. And throughout the balance of the letter, John continues to inform us how to distinguish the wheat from the tares, although he does not use those terms. And that also explains how to unmask an antichrist, which is also how to discern spirits which are not from of God, people who are not born of God. Believe it or not, they exist. This is the true dichotomy governing our present existence, although it is ignored within the greater society. Instead, the world is full of false dichotomies, and artificial, faulty, or even wicked social and political constructs, which snare us in ditches, and which keep the children of God at odds with one another, rather than loving one another. So we embrace the enemies of Christ because they are Republicans, or Freemasons, or even may claim to be Catholics, or whatever other cause, or organization we attach ourselves to in the world, and we despise our own brethren when they are not Republicans or Freemasons or Catholics like ourselves. We become separated from our brethren for worldly ideologies that will themselves soon cease to exist, while our spirits are eternal. And we will have to answer for our actions as we face our Creator. So most modern Christians are no different than pagans, caring more for parties and labels than for Christ. 
It is also apparent that most denominational Christians think of Christian love as mere charity, and they throw money away to the dogs, while in their own self-righteousness, they regard themselves justified. So, in the modern world, Christian love is often confused with communism, under the less offensive label of socialism. Paul of Tarsus refuted communism when he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and he said, Also, when we were with you, this we instructed you, that if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. For we hear, and this is exemplary of our enemies, for we hear that some among you are conducting themselves in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but rather meddling with others' affairs. And that describes Antifa, the SPLC, the ADL, and many other Jewish agencies. Now to such we instruct and we exhort by Prince Joshua Christ that working with silence, their own bread they should eat. I'm sorry, I had a sort of sneezing fit before the program began and my sinuses are feeling it. Yahshua Christ refuted communism, where in Matthew chapter 10 he attested that the workman is worthy of his provisions. He refuted communism again in the parable of the three servants found in Matthew chapter 25, and speaking of the servant who did nothing with his talent. He said, so take the talent from him, a talent in this case not being any particular ability, but being a value of money. So take the talent from him and give it to him having the ten talents. For to each having it shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But to he not having, even that which he has shall be taken from him. We see that is a clear refutation of Marx's principles. And the useless servant shall be cast out into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. While even working men often have times of need, repeatedly giving someone charity without expecting work in return accomplishes nothing. The welfare programs of today are an example of the failure of communism as they are a disguised form of communism. But ensuring that a man may work results in his developing his own self-sufficiency, and that helps the entire community. There are even ways to give charity which compel the poor to get it for themselves, and those ways are also found in the law. For this we read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgotten a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that Yahweh thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. Whatever is left behind shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. 
While charity may often be an expression of love, love is not mere charity, and it is not communism. Love is keeping the law, and the poor are given ways to provide for themselves if no one will provide for them. If this seems hard, it is only because, as a society, we have become soft in our luxury. The law also provides for the protection of property rights, thou shalt not steal, and the law is organized in a way that protects workers and makes sure that they enjoy the fruits of their labor. Now today we have had a generation or two of youth who do not want to work, who spend all of their time in leisure. And for that reason, communism has become appealing to them. They want the fruits of your work because they want to hang out and play video games. Speaking about communism, we digress. However, the wrong ideas concerning Christian love must also be addressed as we see how the Apostle John has explained the true substance of Christian love. So, to paraphrase verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, In this is love, not that we loved Yahweh, but that he has loved us and has sent his Son a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if Yahweh has loved us thusly, we also are obliged to love one another. No one has at any time, and I'm going past verse 11, I'm sorry, I should have said to paraphrase verses 10 through 13 of this chapter, the verses leading up to where we had left off in our last presentation. Beloved, if Yahweh has loved us, we are also obliged to love one another. No one has at any time seen Yahweh. If we should love one another, Yahweh abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he gave to us from of his spirit. Presenting those verses. We explained that the spirit to which John referred must be the Adamic spirit with which all of the children of Yahweh are born. As Paul of Tarsus explained in his epistles to the Romans and the Corinthians, Romans chapter 5, chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as Christ himself had professed in John chapter 14, where he said, as we translate it, and that'll cause me to make a, another digression here. He said from verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I shall ask the Father, and he will give to you another advocate, that it would be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, which society is not able to receive, because it does not see, nor does it know it. You know it, present tense. Because it abides with you and it is in you, present tense. While the King James and other versions had that last verse, John chapter 14, verse 17, ending with the words, it shall be in you. Our translation follows the early third century papyrus, 
identified as P66, and the codexes Vaticanus, Beze, and Washingtonensis, which are all of the 4th and 5th centuries. The Papyrus P66, in which only fragments of the Gospel of John survive, is generally dated by scholars to circa 200 AD, according to the 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae. Evidently, while the witnesses for the traditional reading are not mentioned in the Novum Testamentum Grecae, the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus does have the future tense of the verb. I tried searching for this verse in an unindexed facsimile of the Codex Alexandrinus. I have identified the general area where the chapter is, but reading that text is extremely difficult and I've yet to find the exact verse. When I do, because I'm going to find it, when I do, perhaps I will mention it here. I wasted 90 minutes on that today. I wouldn't call it a waste, but the Coin Greek manuscripts where all the letters are capital, and there are no spaces between words, sentences, or paragraphs, it's pretty difficult to find what you're looking for, especially since the facsimiles of the Codex Alexandrinus are barely legible. You have to often guess which letters you're looking at because you'll see a series of what looks like four or five I's with spaces between them, and really some of them might be M's or N's or P's or R's, and part of the letter is actually worn away. It's very difficult to read. So I've noticed a few passages that I could identify, but I haven't found this passage in question here, John fourteen seventeen. I will. Evidently, while the witnesses for the traditional reading it shall be in you, speaking of the Spirit, aren't mentioned in the Novum Testamentum Grecae. For some reason, they omitted them. They only counted the witnesses that have, it is in you. The Codex Sinaiticus does have the future tense of the verb. That is a 4th century manuscript. It is an early manuscript. But because of the division among all those early manuscripts, where the 2nd century and other 4th and 5th century manuscripts have, it is in you, I believe that the Codex Sinaiticus reading and the reading in the traditional text reflects church tradition rather than the accurate original reading of the manuscript. I have another reason for that, another grammatical reason. In that statement, as John had recorded it, Christ had used a present tense verb for you know. So in that context, we should also expect a present tense verb for is in you, which is the reading found in many of the oldest manuscripts. So that might be a long winding digression, but it's necessary in order to explicitly and clearly state our position on the verse. I don't think I spoke about it at that length, even in my commentary on John, to be honest. Now, John has already attested in this chapter that Yahweh had sent his son into the world as an expression of love for those who had needed a propitiation for their sins. 
And since sin is only imputed to those who are under the law, as Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapters 4 and 5, then the expression of love is only for the same ancient children of Israel, the children of God that were scattered abroad, who had been under the law. Yet the children of Israel were to inherit the world, as Paul had also explained in Romans chapter 4, where he said in verse 13, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That doesn't mean that the promise is made to anybody else who believes because it was made to Abraham and to his seed through the righteousness of faith. Paul's language doesn't include anybody else who are not of Abraham's seed. A few verses later, Paul attested that Abraham had become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham's seed, his own descendants, would become many nations. It doesn't leave room for any nation somehow becoming Abraham's seed. The Roman Catholic Church, for 1,800 years, has taken this language and twisted it to mean exactly the opposite of what it says. In their captivity, the children of Israel did indeed become many nations and inherit the world, the old Adamic world, which was described in Genesis chapter 10. In chapter 6 of his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul of Tarsus cited Isaiah chapter 49 in reference to the same purpose of Christ. And here we shall read a larger portion of that passage. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith Yahweh, and this is the portion that Paul had quoted. Paul was not taking it out of context. Yahweh is speaking to the children of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth, to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all the high places. This was written concerning the children of Israel in captivity, who were therefore called prisoners on more than one occasion in Isaiah. They showed themselves. When the apostles of Christ brought them the gospel, which they ultimately accepted, proving that they were the children of Israel. Earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 27, Yahweh God had announced his intention for Israel, in spite of their sin and captivity. 
I should say, and imminent captivity, because Isaiah chapter 27 was written as the captivities were just beginning, or were underway at least. He shall cause them to come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he smitten him? Referring to the captivities. Has he smitten him? Has he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shoots forth, thou wilt debate it. In other words, when it actually happens. He stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten asunder, the groves and the images shall not stand up. If I translated that, I would have probably left off the word up. They shall not stand. When the nations of Israel in captivity had accepted Christ, as the apostles brought the gospel to Anatolia and to Europe, to the places where they had been scattered, then the pagan altars were destroyed and the iniquity of Jacob was purged. So the children of Israel were the world that needed the salvation of Christ to fulfill the word of Yahweh God in the Old Testament and to keep the promises made to the fathers. The children of Israel are the world which Christ came to save. And John and the other apostles certainly understood that. So it is in that context that we should understand this epistle. So continuing with 1 John chapter 4, with verse 14, he now makes an assertion concerning his own evangelism. And we witnessed and we testify that the Father sent the Son, Savior of society, or the world, if you will. And I won't, in my notes, cite the passage from the Wisdom of Solomon that I like most to cite in this context, where Solomon had professed that the whole garment, the whole world, was represented on a garment of the high priest. That garment only included the Urim and the Thummim, which represented the answers to inquiries made of God, and 12 gemstones, 12 stones, each one representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the whole world. That represents the children of Israel and Yahweh's word to them, period. Nothing else was on the breastplate of the high priest. And we witnessed and we testified that the Father sent the Son, Savior of society, as we translate the word cosmos, because it doesn't mean planet. In the opening verses of this epistle, we read, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have observed, and our hands have touched concerning the word of life, that the life was made manifest, and we have seen, and we bear witness, and we announce to you the eternal life which was with the Father. 
and has been made manifest to us. So here, in this fourth chapter, we have a second attestation that this John, the John who wrote this epistle, is the same John who bore the gospel by that name, in spite of the modern-day critics who insist that this is some different John. They are just fools. To the contrary, by saying witnessed here in the past tense, while testify is in the present tense, the apostle speaks not of what, I'm sorry, the apostle speaks of what he had seen in the past, as the verb theaomahi, theaoma, I'm sorry, this is a tongue twister, when the Greeks take three vowels and put them together, and they accent the second vowel, and then you should pronounce the third vowel separately, and we have an A and an O, T-H-E-A-O, theaomahi, it's hard to say, it's difficult for me to say quickly, as the verb, theaomahi, is literally to behold, that's what it means, and therefore, this is not a reference to some evangelical witness, as the term witness is used in churches today. But rather, it is a reference to what he had actually seen with his own eyes. He had actually seen it in the past tense, perhaps 60 years before he wrote this epistle, and he's testifying of it in the present tense to anybody who would listen, ostensibly. Once again, we must reiterate the fact that the promise of salvation is a specific matter of prophecy made exclusively to the children of Israel in captivity. As we read in Isaiah chapter 45, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Then, in Isaiah chapter 46, it is explicitly stated once again that salvation is for Israel where we read from verse 13, I, Yahweh, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Then in Isaiah chapter 49, the purpose of salvation is explained. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. The children of Israel were prophesied to become many nations and scattered to the ends of the earth. As we see, for example, in the blessings for Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis chapter 48, and for Joseph in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where we read, His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people, the people of Israel, 
together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. In several other passages in Isaiah, Yahweh God had announced that he alone is the savior of the children of Israel. For example, will we read in Isaiah chapter 63, I will mention the loving kindness of Yahweh and the praises of Yahweh according to all that Yahweh has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. No other people could ever claim to be the people of Yahweh. And therefore, no other people can justly claim to have been saved in the blood of Christ. It cannot be taken for granted that John is disregarding the context of Scripture as he wrote these epistles. He is teaching his readers how to divide the wheat from the tares, to distinguish those spirits which are not from of God from spirits which are from of God, as not all people are from of God, which is another truth that the denominational churches seem to ignore. So now John continues in that same manner. He who shall profess, this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. He who shall profess that Yahshua is the son of Yahweh, Yahweh abides in him and he in Yahweh. The third century papyrus has the last phrase of this verse to read, and he is in him. The third century papyrus labeled P9. In this papyrus, only fragments of verses 11 and 12 and 14 through 17 of this chapter are preserved. And this is the only noteworthy departure from the text of the other manuscripts which it contains. Seemingly, it is not difficult for any man to profess that any other man is the son of God or of a God, and of course, in the original Greek, the word which we translate as Yahweh is merely theos, which means God, primarily. I've translated it Yahweh, as I explain in an appendix in the Christianian New Testament, purposely because Yahweh is God, there is no other. But it was not difficult for any man to profess that any other man is a son of God, or a son of a God. The Romans declared their emperors to be the sons of God, as they had deified their dead emperors. But Luke informs us, in chapter 3 of his gospel, that Adam was the son of God. And John had already professed here, several times in this epistle, that the children of God would be manifest in the gospel of Christ. The word of God in the Old Testament for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, informs the children of Israel that they are the children of Yahweh their God. So in Isaiah chapters 43, 49, and 60, there are clear references, explicit references, to the Israelites as the children of God scattered abroad as the sons and daughters of Yahweh. 
Even in the time of their captivity and punishment, he claimed them and them alone as him as his sons and daughters. Then in that same manner, Paul had also written in Romans chapter 8, that same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. So if there are many children of God, as John also attested in chapter 11 of his gospel, where he mentioned the children of God that were scattered abroad, they were children of God even before they ever heard the gospel, then John must mean to describe some greater distinction where he attests that Christ is the Son of God here in this epistle and suggests that Christians should acknowledge him in that manner. Therefore, where John wrote that he he who shall profess that Yahshua is the Son of Yahweh, Yahweh abides in him, that pronoun, he, must have been, I'm sorry, I don't know what my original thought is when I wrote this, but I shouldn't be referring to the pronoun he. Saying the son, he must have been referring to a specific son of Yahweh, because John had already pressed professed elsewhere that Yahweh had many children, many sons and daughters. So here, by saying the son, he must have been referring to a specific son of Yahweh. For this, we see in the second psalm, in the words of David, from verse 6, it's a short psalm, but we won't read the entire psalm, we'll only read the later half of it. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, or the nations, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them, with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Profess that he is king. Profess that he is the Christ. That he is the Messiah of Israel which goes along with all of the prophecies concerning him, that he is also Yahweh God incarnate. That's what it means to kiss the Son, not just to believe in Jesus and not have any real concept of who Jesus is. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Here we may also perceive that obedience to this Son is the way that we may serve God. It is really the only way. Of course, as it is in all of his Psalms, when David wrote those words, he was writing of himself 
and his having become king of Israel. But Christ, being Yahweh God incarnate, is the true king of Israel. While the life of David served as a type for Christ, and therefore his psalms are replete with prophecies of the Messiah which are fulfilled in the gospel of Christ. Because David's life was in many aspects a prophecy of the Messiah. In this regard, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter had acknowledged David to have been a prophet. In Isaiah chapter 55, Ezekiel chapters 34 and 37, and in Hosea chapter 3, I can't possibly cite all of these passages or supply the text of all of these passages this evening. I guess I could if I wanted to be here for quite a while. And in Hosea chapter 3, in those four places, the promised Messiah is called or referred to as David for that same reason long after David himself was dead. So the son of John's statement here is the prophesied son of the second psalm, the son who would inherit the nations, destroy them, dash them in pieces, and rule forever. So in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we read, in words attributed to Nathanael, where he was addressing Christ, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. That is the expectation which the pious men of Judea had in the promised Messiah. And it isn't the only expectation. However, that is what it is that John refers, to which John refers when he speaks of those who accept Yahshua as the Christ and as the Son of God, that he is that Son from the second Psalm. Therefore, Christ is not merely a Son of God, but the Son of God, a particular Son who was promised before time. Paul of Tarsus, addressing the men of Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, is recorded as having cited the same second psalm, where he said in part, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, not unto anyone else, but unto us their children, the children of the fathers, the children of Israel, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Many years later, in the opening verses of his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul wrote likewise and said, On many occasions and in many ways in past times, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. At the end of these days, he speaks to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all, to whom also he made the ages. Now, the son being Yahweh God incarnate, the son is the substance of the person of the Father, as Paul goes on to explain in that same epistle. He's not his own person, 
He is Yahweh God, the Father, incarnate as his own son. As for the customs of the period, the Roman emperors had, even if they had many sons, they adopted a particular son, and sometimes a man who wasn't even a son. They would adopt as a son to make him the heir of the empire. Christ being anointed as the son is the heir of everything which Yahweh created, according to Paul in that very passage, whom he is appointed heir of all in exactly the same fashion as the Roman emperors. So that does not negate the fact that the children of Israel and their legitimate descendants are also sons and daughters of God, as the scriptures often refer to them. Therefore, Paul had written in chapter 8 of his epistle to the Romans, speaking of Christ and those same children of Israel, from verse 29, because those whom he has known beforehand, he is also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren, other sons and daughters of God. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, and of course, if you're not one of those people that were appointed beforehand, you're not one of those children. These he also calls, and nobody else. And those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy, and nobody else. While those he, whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. Then in Hebrews chapter 2, Paul wrote likewise and said, focusing on the portion of the passage where Christ is firstborn among many brethren, that all of the children of Israel remain sons and daughters of God in, Christ, in spite of Christ being the Son of God. Paul wrote, For both he sanctifying, which is Christ, and those being sanctified, which are the children of Israel, are all sprung from one, meaning Jacob, the heir of the promises, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will announce your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And again, I will be confident in him. And again, so Paul is directly tying this to the Old Testament. Behold, I am the children which Yahweh has given me. And that is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, and refers to the children of Israel. Therefore, since the children, those children from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, nobody else, therefore, since the children have taken part in flesh and blood, he also in like manner took part in the same, that through death he would annul him having the power of death, that is, the false accuser. And he would release them, as many as whom in fear of death, throughout all of their lives were subject as slaves. For surely not that of messengers or angels has he taken upon himself, 
But he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren. So the children of Israel were already brethren before Christ came, and he became like them, that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh to make a propitiation for the sins of the people in what he himself has suffered being tested, because in that way he can judge us justly. He is able to help those being tested. Earlier, in verse 10 of this chapter, John said that in this is love, not that we love Yahweh, but that he has loved us and has sent his son a propitiation for our sins. And now, in regard to that love, he says in verse 16, this love, uh, I'm sorry, and we know and we believe the love which Yahweh has for us. Yahweh is love, and he abiding in love abides in Yahweh. And Yahweh abides in him. This love of which John speaks is the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the word of Yahweh addresses the children of Israel. And we read, For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if ye hearken to, this, to these judgments and keep and do them, that Yahweh thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thy wine, and thine oil, the increase of thine kind, and the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. Love is in the law, but it is also in the prophets. The ancient children of Israel had failed to keep the commandments, and they were ultimately put into captivity for their punishment. The Sinai covenant was conditional, and the children of Israel were punished for breaking it. But many of the promises to the fathers were unconditional, and Yahweh God has obligated himself to keep them in spite of the actions of the children of Israel. So it is evident in Isaiah chapter 43, 
that Yahweh continued to love the children of Israel, even in their captivity, where it says, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, nobody else's Savior. In fact, if you're an Egyptian, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast Precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee in spite of their sins. Therefore, will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, Keep not back, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, meaning Israel. Yeah, I have made him, meaning Israel. There is also evident that Yahweh loves the children of Israel at the expense of the other nations. In this case, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba which were all overrun by beasts only a short time before Isaiah had written those words. The Nubian invasions of Ethiopia and Egypt. So Yahweh continued to love the children of Israel in captivity. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, when a new covenant was promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, Yahweh once again affirmed his love for them in that same place where the chapter opens. At the same time, saith Yahweh, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, a reference to the Israelites taken in the captivities. Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Then a little further on, in chapter 8, in verse 8, I'm sorry, of Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coast of the earth. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. After a few more verses of both encouragement and admonition, 
The new covenant is explicitly promised to those same people. And no one else can justly claim to be a party to that new covenant. As Paul also acknowledged in Romans chapter 9, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 8. We have seen in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 4, where Yahweh told the children of Israel that I had loved thee. And to that passage, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9 should be cross-referenced, where it says in a message to the church at Philadelphia, a name which means brotherly love, Behold, I shall give those from of the congregation of the adversary, the King James has synagogue of Satan, that may be more poetic for sure, saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not, but they are liars. Behold, I shall make them that they shall come and they shall worship before your feet, and they may know that I have loved you. Those who claim to be Judeans but were lying are today's Jews, who are actually descended from the ancient Edomites. Of these, John had said earlier in this epistle, in chapter 2, that they came out from us, but they were not from of us. Now, speaking of that love which is in the law, John relates it to judgment, and he says in verse 17, By this the love is perfected among us, that we would have free spokenness in the day of judgment. Because just as he is, we also are in this society. The Greek word translated as free spokenness here is parasia, which according to Liddell and Scott is primarily outspokenness, frankness, freedom of speech, claimed by the Athenians as their privilege, using this term, the Athenian citizens asserted their freedom of speech. While we do not favor democracy, the democracy of Athens granted greater liberties to its people than most of the so-called democracies of today, which are actually tyrannical plutocracies, and friends of ours are being imprisoned or threatened with imprisonment in Britain right now. And from what I've read in the chat today, friends of ours have also had trouble in Germany for speaking out about some of the sins of today's world. The word parasia appears several times in the Septuagint, in Leviticus chapter 26, and in several passages from Proverbs and the books of Maccabees in the sense of something which was done boldly or openly. In one passage of Proverbs, as well as one in Job, it is translated as confidence in similar contexts. Further on in their definition of the word, Liddell and Scott state that Greek writers had also used the word to describe freedom of action as well as freedom of speech. It is used in both senses in the New Testament, where it appears mostly in the writings of John and Paul. Paul had more often used it as freedom of speech, and John describing Christ sometimes, but in most places he used it to describe Christ preaching or doing things healing or doing things openly 
Here John asserts that Christian liberty is realized once love is perfected in the Christian. And love is in the law. So John relates it to the day of the judgment of God. The wisdom of Solomon also relates such liberty to judgment, where in the King James Apocrypha, the same word, parasia, is translated as boldness in Wisdom chapter 5. So where Solomon is contrasting the judgment of the righteous to the fate of the wicked, we read in verses 1 and 2, Then shall the righteous man stand in great boldness, that same word John uses here, that we have translated as free-spokenness, that we would have free-spokenness in the day of judgment. In other words, we would have free-spokenness before God. Here it's translated as boldness in Wisdom chapter 5. Then shall the righteous man stand in great boldness before the face of such as have afflicted him and made no account of his labors. When they see it, they shall be troubled with terrible fear and shall be amazed at the strangeness of his salvation, so far beyond all that they looked for. The just man will have that parasia, that freedom of speech or freedom of action at the day of the judgment of God. We read of the connection between liberty and obedience to the law in the 119th Psalm where David professed, So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Keeping the law is the only way we can have liberty. In that same psalm, we read a little further on, that I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. That passage evokes the words of Christ found in John chapter 15, where he said to his disciples, a greater love than this no one has, that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. You are my friends if you do the things which I command you, which is to keep the commandments. Paul of Tarsus mentioned this same Christian liberty on several occasions in his epistles. Using a different word, eleutheria, which actually means liberty, he wrote in Galatians chapter 15, For you have been called on to freedom, brethren. Eleutheria is freedom there. Only not that freedom for occasion in the flesh. In other words, the liberty in Christ does not give you license to be a sodomite or a fornicator. But through love you serve one another. Then, in his next statement, we may once again perceive the love which is in the law, where he wrote, For all the law. Now, he says this in relation to that admonishment that Christians serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one statement. To wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. As we have often explained, the word neighbor, or more literally in our translation, him near to you, 
is defined where brotherly love is first found in law in Leviticus chapter 19. A neighbor is one of the children of thy people. A neighbor is one of your own people and not merely anyone who happens to be within geographic proximity. That's not a neighbor. That's a by-dweller. Elsewhere, using this word, parasia, Paul spoke of the liberty which Christians may expect in judgment, just as we saw here in John and also in Wisdom chapter 5. Paul wrote about it in Hebrews chapter 10. And once again mentions the need for brotherly love in regard to that liberty. So all these concepts are connected in several places in Scripture. Therefore, brethren, having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua, by a new and living way, through the veil which he has consecrated for us, that is, of his flesh, Paul making an allegory comparing Christ's entering into ascend to the Father and, and commune with God after his resurrection, Paul makes an allegory of that to the entrance of the high priest through the veil into the Holy of Holies within the temple where God is said to have dwelled. And the great priest over the household of Yahweh, we should approach with a true heart in certainty of faith having purified the hearts from a wicked conscience, because faith leads to acting on that faith, which leads to obedience to the law, and having washed the body in pure water, not literal water, but the water of the word, as Paul explains, I believe, in his epistle to the Ephesians, we should hold fast the profession of the expectation without wavering, for he making the promise is trustworthy. And we should consider one another in regard to stimulation of love and good deeds, not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together, as is a habit with some, but encouraging, and by so much more as you see the day approaching. Where the messages in their epistles discuss similar subjects, Paul consistently taught the same doctrines which John had taught in markedly different language. Now we may learn that the opposite emotion to love is not hate, but fear. There is not fear in love, but love perfected casts out the fear. Because fear involves punishment. He being fearful has not been perfected in love. Here fear is mentioned in reference to having free spokenness before God. So fear is what results when men have not lived justly before God, when they have not abided in love. And therefore fear is contrasted to love and it is set in opposition to love. But what the, word to, what the world today calls hate is not set in opposition to love. Rather, hate is a necessary emotion by which one defends what things he loves. In the Old Testament, 
It was necessary for the children of Israel to fear the judgment of God, so that they would be compelled to keep his commandments. Therefore we read in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Oh, that there was such a heart in them, that they would fear me, the word of Yahweh, and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And then later, in chapter 6, from verse 2, I just read from verse 29, that thou mightest fear Yahweh thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. But if one loves God, as John explains here, there is no need for fear. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, from verse 12, And now Israel, what does Yahweh thy God require of thee? But to fear Yahweh thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Yahweh thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Therefore Paul of Tarsus wrote in his second epistle to Timothy, in the opening chapter, in verse 7, for Yahweh is not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discretion. Likewise, and close in meaning to what John had written here, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that therefore you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons in which we cry, Father, Father. Of course, Paul was speaking to Romans, who were Israelites, as he said a few verses later in chapter 9, speaking of Judeans who had not yet accepted the gospel. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh. Those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons, and the honor, and the covenants, and the legislation, and the service, and the promises. So we see, in the words of Paul, that the position of sons is only for those who are sons in the first place, the children of Israel, his kinsmen in regards to the flesh, not to some Gentiles who just happen along and get this sudden urge to fall on the ground, flop around a few times, and profess to believe in Jesus, which is absolutely ridiculous. Now John explains why Christians should love God, and at the same time, he once again qualifies the recipients of the love of God. We love because he has loved us first. Some manuscripts have we love him because he has loved us first. Others have, we love him because God has loved us first. The Codex Alexandrinus has, therefore, we love him. We love God. I'm sorry, we love him because God has loved us first. Most of the 
disagreements and variations in the manuscripts are simply little things just like that. I would say 95% of them are little things just like that. Little variations in reading which really make no difference at all in the end. We love because he has loved us first. So we see that those whom should love God are those whom God had loved first. Yet in the law and the prophets, only the children of Israel were loved by God at the expense of all others. The love which Yahweh has for his people Israel is described as the love which a man would have for a woman. In Ezekiel chapter 16, where we read, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yeah, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith Yahweh God, and thou becamest mine. There are many similar analogies throughout the books of the prophets, especially in Hosea and Isaiah. The prophet Zephaniah wrote long after the children of Israel were taken into the captivities of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, where Yahweh affirms the love which he has for Israel in Zephaniah chapter 3, ostensibly expressed in the salvation which is in Christ. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Colonies in other places. The children of Israel in other places. Yahweh has taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even Yahweh, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. Yahweh thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Now John once again associates the need for Christians to love their brethren to the love of God. If one should say, this is verse 20 of 1 John chapter 4, if one should say that I love Yahweh and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he not loving his brother whom he has seen, he is not able to love Yahweh whom he has not seen. Now the Codus is Alexandrinus and Vaticanus Grecus 2061 and the majority text had the final clause as a question to read. For he not loving his brother whom he has seen, how is he able to love Yahweh whom he has not seen? Our text follows the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. In John chapter 13, we read, in words attributed to Christ, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love to one another.
Evidently, the commandment to love one another was not new as love is in the law. But it seems as though, under the Pharisees and Sadducees, it had not been taught to the people. So perhaps Christ had called it new because it was new to them. It was new to the apostles, to his disciples, I should say. In Leviticus chapter 19, we read, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. And that defines that term neighbor used in the next clause. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. Yet even this passage from Leviticus associates that brotherly love with the need to keep the law. As in the verse which precedes it, the word of Yahweh says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor. So neighbor is described and defined there once again as one's brother, one's genetic fellow Israelite, and not suffer sin upon him. The New American Standard Bible captures the sense of the second half of that verse somewhat more appropriately, where it reads, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. Accepting a sinner, one becomes guilty of the sin. So sinful brethren must be reproved, as Paul had also often taught. Then the verse which follows that commandment, to love one's neighbor, says, ye shall keep my statutes. In Romans chapter 13, Paul wrote likewise, citing the same passage from Leviticus chapter 19, where he said, you owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lust, and any other commandment is summarized in this saying, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Love for him near to you, who does not practice evil. And that's a great departure from the King James Version. I won't explain it all here. It is already explained in my commentary on this passage of Romans. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. And Paul did not mean that love by itself suffices to fulfill the law. That is a Judeo-Christian switch tactic where they actually reversed the meaning of what Paul actually meant. They interpret it. Very often they do this. They interpret a passage exactly the opposite from what it says. Love alone does not suffice to fulfill the law. Paul said that love is the keeping of the commandments of the law. As it is recorded in John chapter 14, Yahshua Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There is no Christian requirement to love the wicked, even wicked brethren. 
as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, in reference to sinners, that such as these, who knowing the judgments of Yahweh, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only the, they not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them. To accept a sinner is to approve of his sins. So love is certainly in the law. And keeping the law is the only way to love. Now John refers to that same passage we have cited from chapter 13 of his gospel and says in conclusion, and we had this commandment from him that he loving Yahweh also loves his brother. As Paul of Tarsus wrote in Galatians chapter 5, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because if you love your neighbor, if you love your brother, you will not break those commandments. You will not be a sodomite. You will not be a fornicator. You will not be an adulterer. You will not be a thief. You won't be a communist. The Apostle James also wrote in chapter 2 of his lone epistle that if, however, you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love him near to you as yourself, you do well. But if you respect the stature of persons, you commit an error, being convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who should keep the whole law, but would fail in one thing, has become liable for all, respecting the stature of persons. James was urging his readers to be fair in judgment, to judge the great as well as the small, the rich as well as the poor, to judge them all alike, and not respect the stature or status of persons. For he who should keep the whole law but would fail in one thing has become liable for all. For he having said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Thusly you speak and thusly you do, as if going to be judged by a law of liberty. Love is in the law. But if you keep the law, you love your brethren. And if you keep the law, you have true liberty. But without the law, we cannot have true love, and we will never have liberty. We will forever be slaves to mammon and to the wicked. Thank you for listening. This concludes our commentary on First John through chapter 4. Yahweh willing, we will be back here next week. I can't say we're going to finish chapter 5 in one week, but we will be back here to commence with the final chapter of this epistle. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening.